don't know if I'm going to be able to do this broadcast or not. I don't have a producer because he got put on a week's paid leave by the Monster Island Board of Directors. Some of us can only dream about that. Hey, who's that in the booth right now? Oh, hi, Jet. How you doing? Okay, my JJ speak is still a little bit rusty, but I'm pretty sure you just said you're doing well. That's good to know. So, what exactly are you doing? Come again? Really? You are going to be my producer today. Well, that's interesting. Oh, what's that you got for me there? Oh, you've got to be kidding me. Do I really have to read this? Of course I do. The board will be happy with nothing less, obviously. All right, Jet, put me on the air. On Saturday, October 31st, 2020, there was an incident involving one of our employees and the Matongo Containment Laboratory. At approximately 22.45, James B. Morgan entered the MCL to attend to his temporary duties as caretaker over the Matongo. After beginning to feel weak and disoriented, Morgan was rushed to the Monster Island Infirmary for immediate observation. We are pleased to announce that he has now been deemed healthy with seemingly no physical or psychological impairment. Morgan will be given a full week to recover with pay, and we wish him a speedy recovery. Furthermore, we've since investigated the root cause of the situation and determined it was a malfunction caused by the mishandling of equipment by one of our Monster Island interns. The board will be taking swift and immediate action to make sure an incident like this never happens again. The intern in question will be shown a better way forward following what could have been an extremely tragic situation. Signed, the Monster Island Board of Directors. I will never get over how Orwellian their little catchphrase sounds. All right, Ben will be here soon, and we've got a movie to talk about. Live from Ogasawara, this is The Monster Island Film Vault, Episode 29, War of the Gargantuous, featuring Ben Chaffins. Hello, kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, Nathan Marchand, the curator of the Monster Island Film Vault, and joining me today is none other than sci-fi Japan writer Ben Chaffins. Hello, Ben. Hello. It's great to have you back, man. It's been a couple of months. How are things going yes, with the book? Yes. The book's, you know, doing fairly well. With the whole situation we got going on now with COVID, it's it's kind of edging along. Yeah, I've been reading it, uh, actually, the last couple of months. I've been finding it really interesting. <laughs> you got a lot of big names in that, but we talked about that a couple of months ago, right before the book came out. If anyone wants to know more about it, they can go listen to that interview. Mm-hmm. Today, however, you're joining me to talk about a movie. 
<laughs> specifically <laughs> War of the Gargantuas, which is the pseudo-sequel, shall we call it, <laughs> to Frankenstein <laughs> Conquers the World. Yeah, it's a little confusing. <laughs> yeah, which the original Japanese title is Frankenstein no Kaiju Sanda Tai Gaira. So, yeah. So yeah. it's <laughs> it's tying it back, but the script I we'll get into that. <laughs> Unfortunately, this is a little bit strange. I don't have Jimmy in the producer booth here with me today. <laughs> he was given the week off after some shenanigans with the Matango over the weekend, even though he was given a clean bill of health at the Monster Island Infirmary. So today, I guess we have what you could call the next best thing in the producer booth with me today. Yep, everybody's favorite superhero robot, Jet Jaguar. Apparently, Jimmy showed him how to run all the things in the producer booth this week. I don't know how comfortable I feel with Jet Jaguar doing that. <laughs> I guess we'll find out, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, same to you, Jaguar. Go on about your business. You can actually understand him? I've been reading Jimmy's manual that translates his noises and funny gestures, and I can still understand about half of it. <laughs> I can understand a little bit of robotics. <laughs> <laughs> it's all that research you've been doing, you know, <laughs> diving into all of these oh, Japanese films, <laughs> translating stuff. <laughs> you probably came across yeah. some of Goro Buki's notes, I'm sure. Yeah. All right. So before we get into this, I, I'll give a quick little description about this movie. So it's War of the Gargantuas. We have a trio of scientists who are investigating these two humanoid monsters that are spawned from Frankenstein, from Frankenstein Conquers the World. And they are these big hairy creatures. One is running around attacking cities and eating people, which is terrifying. And then the other one is trying to keep his brother, and I have air quotes, brother, from doing that. That doesn't go well. They get into a big fight at the end, and it ends very tragically because... This is derived from a Frankenstein story, and you can't have a Frankenstein story without a tragic ending. <laughs> exactly. Although, we do have both Sanda and Gyra here on the island, but we have to keep them separated like kids, so we keep one on one side of the island and one on the other, and neither the two shall meet, or else it gets very, very ugly. <laughs> so, to start off just real quick, Ben, what's your history with War of the Gargantuas? I actually... Saw the movie come on the uh, Monster Vision on the uh, TNT years back. You know when we had the VHS tapes, you stuck them in the VHS player, and you hit the record button, and you could watch it again later. But that's my history with it. That's what I first saw it. I was roughly I don't know eight, nine, maybe ten years old. Wow! So uh, this was early in your kaiju fandom, correct? Yeah. Unfortunately, I grew up without cable. So I didn't actually see War of the Gargantuas until much later, well into adulthood. Oh, wow. Yeah. But it was something I'd always heard about. I was always more interested, since I didn't have cable, I was always more interested in trying to collect the physical copies of the movie, so the VHSs, the DVDs, and all of that. And this right. one was really hard to come by. I had always heard about it, but you couldn't just walk into a video store or, you know, Suncoast Motion Picture Company at the mall, which is where I got a lot of my stuff back in the day, and buy it. That is until classic media did us all a favor. 
<laughs> and finally put it out, which is what I have in my personal collection, which is what we watched today in preparation for today's broadcast. Although I will admit, for some odd reason, even though this is kind of countered because Classic Media has a great reputation for their video quality on their DVDs. In fact, some people like prefer them to the Criterion discs. <clears throat> but the Japanese cut of War of the Gargantuas is kind of murky for some odd reason, but the dub version looks great. It's weird. Yeah, something with the transfers went haywire. I guess. I don't know. So, what are your impressions of the movie? Well, let's start there. I, as a kid, you know, I enjoyed it. thought it was very fun. Nowadays, it's probably one of the better kaiju movies I've seen. Although, I just don't know where I would rank it. Hmm. That's interesting. Because I know it's really popular in the kaiju community. And I will admit, when I finally got around to watching it, I went into it with all that hype in my head yeah. for this movie. And then when I watched it, I thought, why do people love this? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Hot take. I really don't get it. I really don't get it. Yeah. Every time I watch this movie, I am surprised that it just doesn't seem like there's a whole lot there. The kaiju stuff is great. It oh, really yeah. is. The kaiju stuff is great. In fact, you know what the sad thing is? Santa and Gaira might be the best characters in this movie. <laughs> oh, without doubt. Which is saying something. Yeah. I don't know what it is. The Mind you, this is at a point where, because this was written by Takeshi Kimura. I'm sure you've heard that name before. One of Toho's oh, yeah. go-to screenwriters. The other one was Shinichi Sekizawa. At this point, Kimura was just writing for hire with Toho. He was no longer invested in anything he was writing. He wrote Matongo, considered that his masterpiece. And then after that, it was just a job to him. And mm -hmm. I have heard that he got to the point where he cynically thought that nobody really watched these movies for the characters. They're just there for the monsters. So he started pumping out scripts with that in mind which might explain why the kaiju stuff in this is great, and the characters are lackluster, to say the least. Like a recent 2019 movie that came out from Hollywood? <laughs> There's your hot take. <laughs> I do have that movie on the docket, so we'll get to that. Yeah, I, <laughs> At least we I will on the you. show. But... <laughs> But yeah, I mean, a few weeks ago, I rewatched Frankenstein Conquers the World, which is the pseudo prequel to this. And I thought the characters in that were actually pretty good. I actually enjoyed that. And there were some things to chew on. And in this, there's just not a whole lot. <laughs> yeah. You got Nick Adams in the somewhat prequel to everything with Frankenstein Conquers the World. I mean, Nick Adams is cash money. Oh, yeah, he is, and it's too bad. Actually, it might be a blessing in disguise that Jimmy's not here today because he's got a serious man crush on Nick Adams. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, he's called Nick Adams his spirit animal, whatever that means. And because Nick Adams played Glenn in Monster Zero, and he says Glenn trained him when he was at NASA, so it's this whole to-do. But he is not a fan of Russ Tamblin his replacement in this movie. And you know what? Neither am I. 
that makes three of us. And you know, I think I figured out why Jimmy was giving that week off. Him and our good friend Jack Hudson's are fighting over Nick Adams. Oh yeah, apparently, yeah, that that is a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Someone needs to tell them that Nick Adams is kind of dead. So. <laughs> <laughs> but all of that to say, uh, well, let's talk about Tamblin a little bit here. Have you seen West Side Story? I have not. Okay. Tamblin was in West Side Story. I've seen West Side Story. It's honestly one of my favorite musicals. Yes, I can say that. It's an f- absolutely fantastic movie. It has every right to be a classic. And Tamblin, he gives a great performance in that. So I know he can act. He just decided not to. (laughs) He thought this movie was beneath him. There's a lot we could go into about how he behaved on the set of this movie. A lot of that is actually in my King Kong Escapes episode, which I believe was episode six. So you can hear about it in more detail there. But to say he was difficult on this movie would be an understatement. (laughs) And you can tell when you watch it, especially if you watch the dub version, his delivery is absolutely flat. He does not care. Say what you want about Nick Adams, but the guy did get nominated for an Oscar and he gave it his all. Every role that he had. Tamblin didn't do it. This is the equivalent to someone being really good at their job, but then deciding not to do their job. Because all I keep thinking is, Tamblin, you have one job, you act, and you didn't do it. <laughs> and he failed. He failed miserably. Yeah. You know what's funny? I think his dub actor, who, by the way, does get credit in the beginning of this movie, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> and Tamblin doesn't get top billing. I bet that ticked him off, too. I have no doubt. oh yeah the dub actor has to enhance his performance i think it's hilarious (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh but anyway yeah we could go on about that for forever at this point let's talk about somebody who actually gives a decent performance in this how about our man nakajima (laughs) haro nakajima who gets to play gyra in this movie and for what I understand, this was actually, he said, one of his favorite roles. And this is coming from the guy who played Godzilla for almost 20 years, and he said this was one of his favorite roles. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't just Godzilla. You know, he played some of the uh, Ultra Kaiju as well for oh, yeah. the Ultraman series. Yeah, he yeah. made a career as a suit actor. But I've heard that one of the reasons he really loved being in this movie was the suit was a heck of a lot lighter. <laughs> Oh, for, for it, it wasn't sure. a 200-pound Godzilla suit. <laughs> yeah. And this was something that I discussed a little bit also in a previous episode. I think it was uh, King Kong 76. You actually get to see his, and in the Daimajine episodes now that I think about it, you actually get to see his eyes in this movie. Yeah. It's one of the rare times you get to see the suit actor's eyes. So he was able to give an even better performance, I think, in his mind. Yeah. But, another thing, too, was the uh, Godzilla movie that followed after this, Godzilla versus the Sea Monster. There's a scene where you can see part of his eyes and his head kind of shine through the Godzilla suit. <laughs> I remember somebody, was it you or someone else who pointed that out to me on Twitter? I forget. I think it was you. 
One of these days I need to find a screenshot of that. Might have been Jack as well. Oh, yeah. One of these days I need to find a screenshot of that because I'd love to see where it actually is. That would be hilarious. I think it's the main last battle that he has with Abira. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So we've talked about how this movie is a pseudo-sequel to Frankenstein Conquers the World. I'm still not 100% sure if it is a true sequel or not. There's talk about Frankenstein, but the things that happen in those flashbacks seem a little bit strange compared to the other movies. I've also read some essays that claim that these are the same characters from Frankenstein Conquers the World, but with different names, which I don't really buy that. I'm looking at this and thinking, okay, these are just the same actors other than Tamblin playing different mm-hmm. characters that just happen to be really similar. It's not the first time this has happened. That also happened going from Mysterians to Battle in Outer Space, although in that case it was different characters with the same names. It's really strange. But in this one, which actually reminds me a little bit of Reptilicus. Have you ever seen Reptilicus? We don't talk about that movie. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I know, paper mache monster. But (laughs) the... <laughs> the origin of the gargantuas in the Sandangaira is that they are pieces of flesh from Frankenstein that have grown into these other monsters. Mm-hmm. And there's talk of Frankenstein at frequent points. If you pay attention to the Japanese dialogue, you'll hear the name Frankenstein a lot. But yep. it's still v- weird and it's a little bit precarious as a sequel although what's interesting is a lot of people forget that frankenstein conquers world takes place in 1960 and this movie as far as we know takes place in the year it was released so 1966 so as far as we know there was a six-year gap between the movies which does help smooth some things over but it's still weird so i mentioned that gyra goes around eating people this is not something we typically see in a toho kaiju movie well, unless you count Rodan, but again, that's more off-screen. Stuff. Yeah, that was more implied than anything else. And I guess you could say the Mega Neuron in that movie, Mega Neuron, whichever yeah. way you like to say it. We're probably eating those miners, but that's about it. Well, and I guess there's also the implication that Varan ate those guys that came onto yep. his mountain. But like I said, anything before this has been implied. This one, there is no hiding it. Gyra is literally popping people in his mouth like they're popcorn and spitting out their clothes after he chews them up, which is kind of horrifying. (laughs) Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, man. (laughs) I mean, even King Kong didn't eat people. He bit them. He put them in his mouth and bit them, but he didn't eat them. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, at least the good thing for him, you know, at least the clothes didn't get stuck in his throat. (laughs) okay you have transitioned us to a very important thing the most infamous thing in this movie that gets punned and joked about in the fandom everywhere this kishy song the words get stuck in my throat man i think there's actually a couple different versions of this because if you look up this clip on youtube i swear there's a version that actually sounds worse and i don't i think it might be from the dub i think it actually sounds worse in the dub oh wow maybe i'm not entirely sure my (laughs) my mother is a singer with perfect pitch and i think if i played this song for her it might kill her (laughs) 
<laughs> she'd have a brain hemorrhage and die. <laughs> it is what the heck? Yeah, that's why we don't play the song. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I'm not playing the song. I am sparing the kaiju lovers and the listeners list right now. Mm, I will not torture you with this because I don't need your ears to start bleeding. It's just ah, and there's weird stuff. <laughs> there's weird stuff with this song. <laughs> yeah, supposedly the woman who sings this, Kip Hamilton, supposedly according to Tamblin, so take it with a kaiju-sized grain of salt. The only reason that she's in the movie singing that song is because she was supposedly producer Henry G. Saperstein's girlfriend at the time. Say what you want about that. Yeah, no, no comment. Yeah. And, oh my gosh, who wrote this? I would love to know who wrote this song. I don't know if it was Kimura, which is interesting because Sekizawa, he was a songwriter too, so he'd actually write the songs that appear in his script. So, this will blow your mind, he actually wrote the lyrics to Mothra's song. I knew, I knew that. Yeah, but I don't know if Kimura wrote this. I, I have no input on that on all. I couldn't tell you who wrote it. Yeah, but I will tell you, this does not sound like a top 40 radio love song to me. <laughs> it's I mean, not even elevator music. Whoa, no, no uh, the, although that sounds like something that the board of directors would do here. They would start playing this song in all the elevators. Oh my gosh, I shouldn't have said that. Now they're actually going to do it. Those jerks. <laughs> no i mean like it's got lyrics like microphone amplify turn the power on i mean she's talking like you know i would turn the power turn the power on in my heart or something like that what the heck it sounds like something you would hear in a commercial <laughs> Seriously. Maybe that's, it. that's the, or the song originated they probably sing different types of commercials it's like okay we'll just take lyrics out of what each person said put it together <laughs> But then hilariously, it's like Gyra subtly was channeling the audience because in that nightclub scene, what does he do? He reaches in and he grabs that woman <laughs> and she stops singing. Yeah. And then you think he's going to eat her and he doesn't. I'm sure everybody was rooting for him to eat her at that point. <laughs> but no, he just drops her. And I guess some people would like to pretend that she died, but we don't really know. Oh. <laughs> uh, if she's still alive, I wonder if the board would try to arrange for her to come sing at a shindig here on the island. That'd be a little terrifying. Yeah. I can't imagine if he did actually hear that maybe the song would still play like a <laughs> voice recorder thing going off in his throat. <laughs> still, still going off. I want that fan co- uh, that fan edit. I want it where, like he eats her and then oh, you just every time he opens his mouth, you just hear it. The words get stuck in my throat. <laughs> and he like closes his mouth like, what the frick was that? The yeah. words get like <laughs> every time he gets into a fight with Santa and his mouth opens, you just hear <laughs> the song just keeps coming out. <laughs> yeah, Santa stops in his tracks and it's like, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> and then Santa be like, well, it's the song, man. I mean, you shouldn't have eaten her. I mean... <laughs> Yeah. Oh my goodness. It's just one of so many decisions in this movie that I don't entirely understand. (laughs) I really don't. Yeah, it's it's anybody's guess. At this point. So since we're still on the subject of Sanda and Gyra, let's talk about the ending here a little bit. Now, because like I said, Sanda and Gyra are the best characters in this movie. And I have to say, 
both Nakajima and... I think it was Yu... Uh, let's see. Yu Sakita. Yes. Yu Sakita. Or, yeah. Yeah. Sakita. They give wonderful performances in this. Their body language is impeccable. Now, some credit should be given to the sound editors on this movie, but my gosh, they really know how to work those suits. Their body language tells you everything. Well, almost everything. And yep. it is remarkable. So we get to the end of this movie, and as I sort of joked at the beginning, it's something of a tragic ending. Do you think it's a tragic ending? Like, I think it is. In a way, yeah. I mean, it's basically two brothers fighting to the death, kind of like Cain and Abel. Yeah, which is interesting because I have heard a lot of people compare this to Cain and Abel. It definitely fits in with that sort of archetype. For mm -hmm. those who may not know, Cain and Abel is a Bible story. They were the first two sons born to Adam and Eve after they were expelled from the garden. Cain was the older son, and they both offered sacrifices to God. Cain's was rejected, but Abel's was accepted, and then, infamously, Cain murdered his brother and then was cursed by God for it. So he committed the first murder. Yep. And you see it in this. Although, as I found out doing my research, it's not so much the Cain and Abel story, but I found it was actually in the Honda biography this was brought up. It may have actually been inspired by a Japanese story called The Sea Boy and the Mountain Boy. Have you ever heard of this? Umihiko and Yamahiko? Oh, yeah. Yes. I have a little summary here I'll, that I'll read for you just to kind of... I mean, the story's longer. It's from the, the Kojiki, which if you want to know about the Kojiki, because it's this collection of Japanese myths. It was written in the 700s AD. You can hear about that in episode 13 on the Three Treasures. So, the older yeah. brother, Umihiko, was a fisherman, while Yamahiko was a hunter from the mountains. The brothers exchanged their respective gear, a bow and a fishing hook, and traded places and jobs. That didn't go well. Yamahiko loses his brother's fish hook. The younger brother tries making 500 and then 1,000 fish hooks from a broken sword, but that didn't satisfy the older brother. An old man helps Yamahiko build a boat to search for the fish hook, and after being carried away by the current, Yamahiko finds a fish scale palace and meets a princess who takes a liking to him, as usually happens with these things. <laughs> she takes him to her father, the sea god. He asks if anyone had swallowed the fish hook, and the sea god finds it in the mouth of a red snapper. The sea god gives him the fish hook, telling him to recite what was essentially a curse when he gave it to his brother and to jewels that controlled the tides. Later, the brothers' respective peoples... By the way, I forgot to mention in this that Yamahiko then rides a crocodile back to the mainland. <laughs> Later, the brothers' respective peoples plant rice fields, and Yamahiko's was better. Umihiko, out of jealousy, attacks his brother and takes that rice field. Yamahiko uses the high tide jewel, which floods the rice fields. Umihiko cries out to his brother as he drowns, and Yamahiko lowers the tide with the other jewel. Umihiko apologizes and submits to working for Yamahiko. Now, there's other details in the story because Yamahiko marries the princess, and there's all this to do about that in some later chapters in the Kojiki, but this is the part of the story that is most pertinent to our discussion here. This is definitely a loose adaptation, to say the least. <laughs> yep. But it definitely fits in with this archetypal story, two brothers battling each other. Although the characters admit that 
calling them brothers is a little bit of a loose term. (laughs) (laughs) They're more like clones, which I can't think of too many movies in the 60s that talk about cloning, which I thought was interesting. No. Speaking of cloning and also people's attitudes toward this movie, I actually found this little quotation from Honda who actually said he uh, wasn't even too fond of this movie, which I'm sure would disappoint a lot of people (laughs) to hear that. He said, quote, I found this one a little boring. (laughs) (laughs) I am glad people like it, but that film didn't really have much heart. I was mainly interested in the idea of cloning, which is a social issue now. You could make a great scientific drama about that. (laughs) (laughs) Good old Hashiro Honda. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I think the reason why... As I already mentioned, the the kaiju stuff in this is actually really good. But why do you think this movie gets more attention than, say, Frankenstein Conquers the World in the fandom? That much I cannot answer. It is a mystery to myself. Uh, It's the same thing with a lot of different Godzilla movies. I mean, everybody's going to like what they like. You know, there's no problem with that. And same thing with disliking. You know, people are going to dislike what you and I might like, but that's just the way nature is. But uh, compared to Frankenstein Conquers the World, this movie, I would say it cannot hold a candle to it. Yeah, I would argue that the kaiju stuff in this is probably better, but Frankenstein is superior, I think, in every other regard personally. Yeah. I think part of the reason why this has gotten a little bit more noteworthy than Frankenstein is there have been a couple of noteworthy celebrities who have mentioned that they like this movie. Like Brad Pitt, apparently. At the 84th (laughs) Academy Awards in 2012, he said this was the first movie he could remember seeing. And also, apparently, it's a favorite of Quentin Tarantino. Or at the very least, he said it was influential on him. I'd like to know how. Yeah. (laughs) Can you imagine Quentin Tarantino directing a kaiju movie that would be insane yeah it wouldn't be just insane i think it'd be pretty bad if you ask me (laughs) oh this is the episode of hot takes apparently (laughs) 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 someone is not a tarantino fan here i take it (laughs) but in my research i did actually find a few people who tried to find some substance in this film And, I I mean, it's interesting. I don't know if this was really on the minds of the filmmakers as they were doing this, but these are interesting, to say the least. Peter H. Brothers, in his book Mushroom Clouds and Mushroom Men, which was kind of the closest thing to an actual biography for Honda up until Rifo and Gudicheski did theirs, he actually thinks that this movie, believe it or not, Ben, is a commentary on the Vietnam War. Yeah, I've I've actually read his book you know it's it's a pretty good book don't get me wrong but i just i don't see the connection there it's loose to say the least but he says since gyra is green aggressive and somewhat asian looking okay that he represents the country vietnam while the caucasian looking and principled sanda okay is america Now, from what I've read, because I'm not as familiar with the dub version of of this as I am the Japanese, this is emphasized a bit more in the dub version, because Dr. Stewart, our favorite guy, Russ Tamblin, calls Gyra a hawk and Sanda a dove, and 
Brothers argues that because there's no clear winner in the fight, going back to the ending here a little bit, because there's a volcano that just comes out of nowhere and swallows up the monsters. Yep. So there's no clear winner. Now, I will just kind of inject here real quick. I do feel for Sanda, but there was nothing close to redemption for Gyra in this, so I don't really feel for him. So because there was no clear winner in this fight between the brothers, he's saying that's indicative of the fact that there was no clear winner in the Vietnam War. Okay. (laughs) Which we know that's not true. (laughs) Well, in 1966... Yeah, that was a quagmire. <laughs> Want to hear more about that? Check out my Kong Skull Island episode with Dallas Mora. Now, another, this actually, Ben, I think you could speak to a little bit because we've talked a bit about this on Twitter, I know. But Jason Barr, author of a book called The Kaiju Film. Have you ever read that? No, I've, I've heard of it. I've yet to pick it up. I highly recommend it. It is fantastic. He's an English teacher, actually, an English professor. Talks a lot about different things that are seen throughout a lot of different kaiju movies. But he actually interprets Sanda and Gaira much differently. He argues that they represent two different national identities in Japan. The ultra-nationalist right that downplays or ignores war crimes to argue for a more pro-military stance and the Japanese left that prefers to use war crimes to de-emphasize the military. So he sees Sanda and Gaira as the mirror image of these two identities and their brother against brother conflict with Sanda trying to save the violent Gaira, he says, serves as a warning that these opposing ideals have to be reconciled or the country will be destroyed. Now, this is a long-standing cultural conflict in Japan because it wasn't until the 80s that school textbooks even addressed the issue of the nation's role in the war. And it's been very contentious ever since because they've tried excising mentions of the atrocities that were committed or they soften the language so they might do something like change the word invading to advancing. Yeah. And it's something that goes on to this day. Yep. And not really just Japan, but worldwide too, if you look at it. Yeah. This debate actually flared up again a few years ago when Shin Godzilla came out because that was a big to-do. <laughs> People getting all up in arms about the politics of Shin Godzilla. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. You know, people can say what they want about Shin Godzilla. I will stand my ground and argue that it is still one of the best Godzilla movies within the last 30 years. I would agree with you there. But like I said, it brought all of this to the surface once again. And mm-hmm. it's just one of those things. I mean, you know, I work here on Monster Island with a lot of Japanese people. And on one hand, I'm not all that surprised by this because, you know, Japanese culture is big on. I mean, mind you, this is coming from a dirty, dirty American looking at, you know, looking at everything from the outside. It's a very shame based culture. And I don't think they like remembering any of this. I, I mean, who would, honestly? But yeah. you know, it's not something that you could ignore, which you know, we, we've mentioned Shin Godzilla, but there's a, another Godzilla film that touched on this, which is GMK. Our friend yep. Jack actually wrote an article a few years ago talking about both of these movies together yep. and how GMK preferred to address the issue head on and say that it shouldn't be forgotten, which is right. really interesting. 
but yep. I don't know. Uh, I still think it's reading into it a little bit. <laughs> it's probably trying to find something that isn't necessarily there, but who knows? It may have been in the cre- the backs of the creators' minds. I mean, going on the Jack's article, you know, that's great, great article. Yeah, I'll uh, put a link to it in the show notes. I love that. Yeah. So that's most of what I thought were the important things to mention about this movie. Uh, is there anything that you have that you'd like to cover before uh, we uh, wrap things up here a little bit? From the political stance, no. But from the kaiju genre, people, you know, I've seen people ask for like a remake of this movie. And the closest thing that they will get with that is, and say say what you will about these movies, but I find them to be highly entertaining, that being the uh, Attack on Titan live-action movies. That's interesting. I know Jack speaks very highly of them, which puts him in the minority, because a lot of people don't like those movies. Now, I've seen the anime, and I like the anime. Yeah, the, the Attack on Titan movies, I feel like, are much more entertaining than War of the Gargantuas. I will give it that. (laughs) You know, I'm not one to advocate for remakes, but I think this is one I wouldn't mind seeing be remade. Without the song. Yes, (laughs) without the song. Unless you can find a way to make it funny. Because I know the song's been referenced, actually, in a few places. Like, Scooby-Doo has even parodied that scene. It's weird. Yeah. (laughs) It's gained some notoriety, apparently. I guess we could thank Brad Pitt for that. Or just the nerds who make (laughs) Scooby-Doo. Or both. <laughs> yeah, probably both. <laughs> but hey, it does have Kumi Mizuno in it. I mean, you can't go wrong there. <laughs> that's, that's true. I'm a little more partial to Akiko Wakabayashi personally, but... Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> man, man of culture, I see. <laughs> Where's that gif when you need it? You know? <laughs> that yeah. anime gif. Is, I see you are also a man of culture. But I will say one fun little thing I'll throw out here. There was a scene early on in this movie. I'll end on this. That, that actually, uh, I'm just I know I'm thinking of a line from uh, an MST3K episode uh, for uh, Overdrawn at the Memory Bank, where they're watching a movie called Yeah, the movie Overdrawn at the Memory Bank, and the, uh, there's a clip of Casablanca that gets snuck into it. <laughs> and uh, the joke was, "Don't show a good movie in your bad movie." I'm kind of doing something similar here, except it might be for a worse movie. I don't know. Actually, it probably is. But there's a scene early on in More of the Gargantuas that reminds me of Godzilla 98. (laughs) Because you have this guy who was on a boat that was attacked by Gyra and the giant octopus, Udako, which is interesting. You want to talk about trying to tie it to Frankenstein Conquers the World, but that's only if you use the alternate ending. So he survives it, and then he gets interrogated at a hospital, and that made me think of Sean Renault, the bright spot of that movie. <laughs> Talking to the <laughs> Japanese guy who sur- uh, who's the one guy who survived Zilla's attack. Yeah. <laughs> Except that you don't have the cool part where he's holding the lighter in front of the guy's face, unfortunately. <laughs> but this sort of a scene was fairly common with a lot of Toho's kaiju movies. You saw it in Godzilla 54, it was in Mothra. They like starting off their kaiju movies with attacks on boats. Yep. So let that sit for a little while. It's possible, possible, I say, that <laughs> Dean Devil and Roland Emmerich saw War of the Gargantuas at some point. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> they probably saw that and didn't see a single Godzilla movie. <laughs> yeah. 
the one kaiju movie. Uh, it's, ever seen. it's obviously called Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> so did everybody. Ah, <laughs> uh, that is another movie for another episode on another day, my friend. <laughs> All righty. Well, I think now would be a good time to wrap things up. If I remember correctly, uh, I think you have a book signing here at the Sekizawa Library for, what is it again? Discovering Tokusatsu? Yes. All right. Well, while we're talking about that, give us some plugs for all your stuff. Some shameless self-promotion because an episode of Monster Island Film Vault is not complete without shameless self-promotion. So for anyone that's interested in checking out my book, Discovering Tokusatsu, it is available on Amazon. You can either purchase the paperback or get the Kindle edition, whichever you prefer. Oh, it's on Kindle have, now? That's exciting. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's been on Kindle since the publication. Oh, hot dang. I've just been so used to having my physical copy. <laughs> but I have some interviews that are supposed to be going up on Sci-Fi Japan any day now. I'm just waiting on... Keith to get back with me, let me know when they're going to be posted. Uh, Keith uh, is the editor of the website? Yeah, Keith Aiken. Uh, hum- humble gentleman. You know, he's, he's a great guy to chat with. But to give one spoiler on one interview I'm very, very proud of is with uh, Takashi Yagi on Ultraman Nexus, Ultraman Max, and Ultra Q Dark Fantasy. I got to talk with him about his involvement with those, and it's a very informative interview piece. I can't wait for that one to go up. To call and you then, uh, a stand for Ultraman Nexus would be an understatement. <laughs> at this point, you might as well say so. I'm going to pair it that uh, Nexus is probably my favorite toku. Ooh. Maybe that's just me, but I'm going to pair it that that is my favorite toku. But I am in the process now of working on a, another book, but that will have more details related about that much much later on. Would you like to come back on the show and talk about that one when it's done? Possibly, because I know that we're supposed to be getting back together for my favorite Ultraman movie, that yeah. being the next. Ultraman the next, yes. It is on one of the many proposals that I have submitted to the board of directors for future seasons of the show. And I refuse to record on Ultraman the Next with anybody but you. (laughs) (laughs) I have made that clear to them. It's like, this man knows more about this movie than anyone else in the English-speaking world. (laughs) Unless they Uh, actually, by some act of God, worked on the movie. (laughs) Yeah, it's possible. I mean, I'm sure somebody else knows the details as well, but... Yeah, I've got a lot of great information that I've translated from these books about the making of the movie and many, many interviews with the cast and the staff. So I look forward to putting that stuff out there when the time comes. Mm-hmm. Uh, heck, you may find a few more over at the, the library today on the island. <laughs> you never know. Hey, everybody. Ben didn't feel like doing the Patreon shout-outs, so... I'm doing them solo as an insert. Travis Alexander! Michael Hamilton! Chris Cook! Danny Damana! Eli Harris! Bex from Redeemed Otaku! Thank you 
so much, guys. I really appreciate what you're doing supporting the show. And you too, kaiju lovers, can get perks like this and so much more starting at only $3 a month on Patreon. Check out the link in our Patreon in the show notes to learn more. Alrighty, well, now that you got your plugs out of the way, I will let all of the kaiju lovers know that our next episode will be, and Jimmy will be back, finally. <laughs> Not finally, it's only a few more days that he's on leave. He will be back, and we will be covering yet another Toho classic. In this case, probably a little bit less of a classic, depending on how you feel about, say, Cesar Romero, but Latitude Zero. <laughs> Have you seen Latitude Zero, Ben? Do we even acknowledge that one? (laughs) (laughs) That's one way to put it. (laughs) Yeah. So Latitude Zero will be our next episode. And then comes, and it's weird for me to think this, Ben. It's weird for me to say it. Our season finale. We will be discussing, again, another Toho classic and maybe a lesser classic, depending on how you want to look at it, Space Amoeba also known as Yogg Monster from Space. <laughs> that's, that's okay. I like it. <laughs> yeah, and I will be joined, interestingly, by Gradden and Matt from the Giant Monster BS podcast. So that one should be fun. And yes, the BS stands for exactly what you think it means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, give them a listen, Ben. You would probably find them amusing. Yeah. All right. With that, thank you very much, Jet Jaguar, for all the work that you did in the producer booth today. I understood maybe half of that. Did you ever get that plane to land? I'm just saying. Anyway, so with that, cue credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nathan Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is TheMonsterIsla1. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASAJimmy. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wander on the Offensive, live edited by B33J, Sarax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Open Way, Battle with the Colossus by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. It can be downloaded from ocremix.org. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and other fine podcasters. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to spread the word about the show. You can also support MIFV on Patreon. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara!